Welcome to Cover to Cover, a podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I am your host, songwriter Matt Tarka. Thanks for joining us. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today is one Ron Babcock. Ron Babcock is a comedian and editor living in Los Angeles. His debut album, This Guy, went to number one on iTunes Comedy and number 13 on Billboard Comedy. He's appeared on Adam Devine's House Party, Last Comic Standing, and in his words, other canceled shows. He's edited for Netflix, Disney, HBO, Adult Swim, and others. Most recently, Cat Burglar, an interactive series which debuted on February 22nd, 2022 on Netflix. He's also currently working on a project animating voicemails his mom leaves him. Our conversation centers around a Dayton, Ohio alternative rock band known as The Breeders and their second studio album, Last Splash, which was released all the way back on August 30th of 1993 on 4AD Electro Records. Last Splash was recorded at Coast Recorders in North Hollywood, Brilliant Studios in San Francisco, and Rephrase Recording Studio in Dayton. It was produced by Kim Deal, along with Mark Freegard. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest to the program. Ron Babcock, it is so great to have you. How are you? Uh, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So we've known each other, you know, a little bit since uh, we both graduated college. You know, once 1997? upon a time. 1997. 97. Yeah, and from the uni- fellow communication major, right? But that's right. We had several professors together, I believe. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Wallace duo. Yeah, we had. Uh, let's see, uh, a little bit of um, Professor Mary Beth Holmes, classic. University yes. of Scranton professor. There was a, uh, a Dr. Matthew Reevy. Yes, Dr. Yes. Matthew Reevy. Yes, I think he he was uh, the uh, news writing uh, guru, so to speak. I think there was a Dr. Mike Sill, if I'm, my memory serves correctly. It was like Mike Sill, Garamond. I mean, this is just, I mean, this is a, a classic who's who of Scranton professors of the late 90s. A real ex- all-star bunch. That's exactly right. So since we were there, which is Ages and ages ago, Scranton is much more in the public consciousness, of course, due to that hit show known as The Office. But I think it's also important to share with our listeners here that you produced an excellent documentary on the crown jewel of Scranton oh Skyline, the red oh, is, brick giant known as the Hotel Casey. Deep, deep cut here. Yeah, for my um my senior project at Scranton, I was in the honors program and they said, like, you know, everybody wrote a paper, but me being like contrarian, I was like, no, I'm gonna make a movie. And so I decided to do a documentary, not really knowing how to do one. And you have the whole year to do it. So the first semester, obviously, did nothing. Just had a great time with my friends, just, you know, for the drinking too much, all the good college stuff. And then the second semester was like, I got I to gotta do this. And then um, I just spent the next, like, year of my life in the editing booth. Like, I, you know, this was before cell phones. So if anybody needed me, they just showed up in the editing booth. And I made this movie about an old hotel. I graduated the honors program and I had like a premiere. People came, they cried. I made a lot of old people cry. 
and they bought copies of it on VHS, which gave me the amount of money to like uh, buy my first camera. Because when I graduated from Scranton, they were like, yeah, you can't use our equipment anymore. And I was like, what? So uh, yeah, but I ended up working on that movie for like a semester after I, I well, you guys graduated. I did it. I was on the four and a half year plan. So um, it takes a little extra longer. Highly recommend because it gives you access to all the resources of your university. Well, you had some A1 priorities with the Lackawanna Historical Society, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was always like kind of doing stuff with them. I was always like, I basically, I was basically like 75 when I was like 21. Like I was like, I feel like I was 21 for three weeks and then I just became old. You know, I just like immediately just started talking about Roth IRAs and like retirement and historical preservation. Like that's always been my mindset. I've always been more of like an, an old soul, if you will. So like I see a historical society. I'm like, yeah, I'm buying what you're selling. Come on. (laughs) Folks, we're talking with Ron Babcock today here on uh, Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka. We're going to be delving into the breeders in uh, just a little bit. Uh, Ron, at the top here, you mentioned, well, in your bio, we mentioned Cat Burglar. Can you tell our listeners out there a little bit more about Cat Burglar? It is set to come out on the 22nd of February. That's right. Yeah, it's it's a really cool project I I got to edit on. Um, and it's on Netflix. So I'm sure you either have that or have access to your, your mom and dad's password who has it. Uh, it's a new kind of show. It's an interactive, basically, uh, game. Uh, and it's made by the same people who did um, Black Mirror. So they they might have seen Bandersnatch. It was kind of this interactive thing. They're experimenting with this kind of form of storytelling. But in this case, Cat Burglar is very short. It's like maybe a 12 to 15 minute playthrough. It's trivia based. So depending on how you answer the trivia questions, you'll have um, the character Rowdy Cat goes through a museum and trying to steal this painting from Peanut, the security guard. Um, the cool thing about it from an animation perspective is that the creators of Black Mirror they, they can basically do whatever they want. And they said like, Hey, what do you guys want to do? And they said, we want to make a cartoon. And they're like, all right. And we want to do it interactive. And I was like, okay. And we want to make it look like a Tex Avery cartoon from 1958, which is such an unbelievably specific animation reference. So we ended up making this cartoon look like, I mean, it, it looks like you could pull it off the shelf from like 1958. The amount of like work that goes into trying to make something look hand drawn when it has been done on computers. So if you look at old like Bugs Bunny cartoons, sometimes you'll see a little drop shadow around the character of Bugs Bunny because that's a cell that's placed on top of a background. Like it's two plastic sheets. So there's a little bit of a drop shadow. And we would do that on certain shots to make this subtle depth distinction to have it feel like hand-drawn animation. So we put way too much work. Like the general public is not going to realize 95% of the cool stuff we did in this cartoon, but the animation nerds, I think are going to lose their mind. Oh, I can't wait to watch it. I do have a Netflix account and I'll be, uh, Oh, look t- at you telling bragging. all my friends. You know, you turned what? out okay. You got a Netflix yeah. account. Things are on the up and up. I cleaned up well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> friends, we're talking with Ron Babcock here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, all things animation and his upcoming uh, program titled Cat Burglar. And uh, we're going to be talking about the Breeders now and their 1993 absolute smash of a record, Last Splash. Um, Ron, how did this begin for you? How did you discover the band? Was this your entree into um, the band itself? What um, tell us? Tell us about the breeders and tell us your connection to them. I 
I love, like, it's so funny when you said, Hey, do you want to come on my podcast? And you, you sent out the email that's like, pick an album. And I just was like, I sat down, I'm like, well, it's just one like this. And I, and then I look up and above my desk is a framed poster of the breeders last splash poster when they went on tour and they played the last bash album. And I was like, Oh yeah, I should probably talk about that one. It's the first piece of music that I ever owned. Um, it's a tape that my brother gave to me and he's like, I think you might like this. And I, I was like kind of my, I was, uh, 1993. So it was like just going out of eighth grade into high school. I mean, up until then my musical tastes were basically NPR. Cause that's what my dad would have on the radio all the time. I didn't even know the radio could go to other stations because the only thing it was ever on was 89.9. So I had a shocking amount of knowledge about Sousa and marching music for like an 11 year old. But yeah, I got the breeders and I think inside my heart is like a lo-fi jangly indie guitar. And I just listened to the tape over and over again. And it's just one of those albums for me, like front to back, top to bottom. I'm like, I it just, it all, it all works. It all clicks. And I went and saw them live and they played just the last splash album from front to back. And I think the thing I was most impressed by was that her voice uh, was still so good. Like it just sounded like the CD because sometimes when you go out and you see a concert and you hear the the lead singer's voice, you're just like, oh, this. So this is this is the sixty dollars I spent. Like I just went and saw Hall and Oates, and like, I mean, God bless them, but like they just were forgetting lines and stanzas. Like I mean, we kind of had him for a second, then he'd pop out of the song and come back in. So it wasn't like like she's a rich girl was like I thought this was gonna hit different. But when I saw the Breeders play live, it was. Easily one of the top five concerts I've ever seen. So you saw the classic lineup. Would this have been circa 2012 when that, yeah, exactly. that lineup when got they, back together? Yeah. With like Josephine Wiggs on bass and um, the deals and the, uh, I forget the name of the drummer, but the Jim McPherson, I think, McPherson, on, on drums. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I, I kind of realized around that time that all my favorite bands are from Dayton, Ohio, from the early 90s. Like my other favorite band is Guided by Voices. Which makes sense because I'm like a middle-aged white dude with a beard and I'm wearing a hoodie. So it's like, it's just kind of in our blood. And like, but they're always from Dayton, Ohio. So one of my favorite books is about the Wright Brothers from Dayton, Ohio. So there's something about Dayton, Ohio, which to me feels like the Scranton of Pennsylvania or of Ohio. It's like kind of the same like rough tumble, blue blue collar kind of town. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, hey, this is what we used to make here kind of town. It's interesting you bring up Guided by Voices, Ron, not only because of the Dayton, Ohio connection, but because Robert Pollard in particular has this affinity for collages with a lot of his work, whether it's the musical component or whether it's the cover art. When I went back to listen to Last Splash, there is a sense of a bit of a collage musically. Like they're they're kind of showcasing the breeders are showcasing their influences, you know, all over the place. Sequentially, the the record for me is awesome. It just, you know, it sort of will like kind of dip back into more of a lo-fi kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe a little bit of a velvet underground vibe on some, you know, some places. And then there are just kind of these explosions of, of surf rock. It's kind of here, there, and everywhere. Um Maybe that's yeah. just what Dayton, Ohio does. I, it, it, to, that's why I think one of the reasons I like so much is that there's these songs on it that are just like pretty. They're just pretty, pretty songs. Like I have the um, it, like Roy, uh, that song. It's just it's just a pretty song. And then you go down to like Flipside, and it's just this like really harsh, like 
jangly, like kind of hard guitars. And I love that, that you could do both in the same album and it just fits. And it, it does feel like a, almost like the smorgasbord of, of sounds. And I don't know if it's something in, indicative of the era, but yeah, you're right. The collage is like a good word for it. Also, I don't know if it, it just feels like it has that DIY kind of mentality to it, which is so like burned into my soul from going to so many like punk and ska shows growing up, like was just like, you know, people selling their merch. And I don't, I had so much, I just thought it was always so cool. Cause I was like, wow, here's this something thing that people want to do and look at them doing it. Like I was so like, I always thought a CD was so cool. That's like, you made this CD and, and you're selling it out of your trunk. Yeah. And it's just yeah. like, and it's weird. Cause like, I do like a lot of stand up comedy. And back then in the early two thousands, if you were a comic who sold merch, a lot of time people would look down on you. Like every scene has their division. So like in Boston, it was like the Boston comics, the working man comics versus the Cambridge comics. And like the Boston comics would be selling t-shirts and the Cambridge comics would be like, oh God, merch that's beneath us. Cause people would have like some weird novelty thing they would sell after shows, you know, so they can make gas to get to the next gig. And I never had that issue with standup. I always thought coming from like punk and ska and just weird indie shows, to me, merch was always the coolest thing because, like, I was always so excited to go to the merch table and, like, you know, pick up a couple of buttons or whatever and some stickers. Like, I just thought it was rad. And I, I just love those indie bands from the 90s because I feel like they just, a lot of them were like silk screening their own t shirts. And I mean, especially in Guided by Voices, they were just doing everything themselves. And to me, that's so like inspirational because it's like, well, heck, if they could do it, like, I could, I could do something weird too, you know? What's been your aesthetic uh, with your own comedy routine? What kinds of merch do you have available at, at clubs? I had a um, when I, I did like a, a three month tour a couple of years ago. I got sponsored by this um, company that sells vintage Mercedes, and um, they let me borrow a vintage Mercedes. And I drove coast to coast and doing all these shows. And I became like the Willie Loman of stand up comedy because I, I I took an old uh, suitcase and I repurposed it into like a mobile merch store. Like think of the guy who used to like sell elixirs, you know, from town to town and like pops open the case and is like, what do we got here? And so I had it full of like just t-shirts and stickers and like koozies and like buttons. Uh, I would always love the buttons because like back in the 90s, my God, you know. Your jean jacket would be full. Chock yeah, we had, block. And yeah. Sometimes we put our buttons down on our, like, our jean pocket, you know, just to like mix it up. Like it was like your buttons. It was like your bumper sticker for yourself. And I just, I loved all that. So like I... I did have one shirt that I thought was pretty rad, which is um, I used to do this bit where I read from a creationist um, children's book called What Really Happened to the Dinosaurs. And my friend Chris Fairbanks drew this great image of um, Adam and Eve sitting on the back of a brontosaurus with a gun to its head. And that was the shirt. Like, in, uh, And then if, if you like, I thought I was so clever because I put the the bit like the link to the bit in the the tag, like I printed it on the inside label, like a, a little link so people could like, you know, type it in. And I thought that was so cool. And I didn't tell anybody the link was there. And to this day, I've sold hundreds upon hundreds of these t-shirts. To this day, no one has ever reached out to me like, oh, hey, I saw the bit from the link you, you put in the tag. Like nobody's ever even looked at that thing. But they <laughs> like people like the shirt. That's really cool. That's an Easter egg, so to speak. It's like an, is it an Easter egg if nobody finds it? Like at that point, it's just an egg. It needs to be like found to become an Easter egg, you know? That's true. That's true. Friends, we're talking with Ron Babcock here on Cover to Cover with Matt Targa. We're running the gamut here, you know? 
We're talking about the Breeders. We're talking about, you know, the second record, Last Splash. This feels like an opportune time to kind of talk about some of your either absolute favorite tracks on the record, or we could do as our, uh, the show here suggests and go cover to cover. What um, what would you like to do? I'm always guided by the guest. I mean, I'll uh, I'll talk about some of my favorite tracks. That sounds fun. Okay. Um, I think it's weird when you say like, oh, what's your favorite one? And I, I guess I guess to me, the one that I I, I that I always was drawn to is uh, track number fourteen, Driving on Nine. And it's this really kind of soft, melodic, almost like a nursery rhyme kind of back and forth to it. And uh, it's just, again, like her voice is just so um, angelic and soft. And it's just, um, I, I, I don't, it sounds kind. I don't know. Like it's, it's so less like pleasant to listen to. And uh, yeah, I always love that song. Yeah, there's a. I I think I picked up some violin, maybe a little bit of mandolin. Yeah, kind of a kind of sort of a Celtic folk arrangement. It sort of catches you off guard based yeah, on what you heard previously. I think I've always like my ears are always attracted to those like high pitched kind of. Um, I never know. Like when I talk about music, like you you're a musician. I never know if I'm using the right words. You know, like I remember I was just describing to our assistant editor. I was like, hey, some of your sound effects sound thin. And he's like, "Oh, is that like a word?" And I'm like, "I have no idea." But I, to me, like the it always like that high pitched tinny kind of register. Yeah, that's um, it. Tinny is that tinny? Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I always really, um, I don't know. I always, I love, I love that, and I love that. Yeah, the the weird like kind of raging of the guitars. Like if you get onto um, like Divine Hammer, which is this like kind of really fast. Um, kind of more upbeat version of, of driving on nine in a way. Like it's kind of that same pretty voice, but it's a really fast guitar. And I guess I, I, I always thought guitars were going to just always be King. And now if like, I feel like if I talk to like young friends, I feel like they don't listen to a band that has one guitar. Like it's just not the lead uh, instrument in a lot of um, modern music today. Absolutely. Divine hammer. What an, what just a great double entendre. Have you ever seen the music video for this one? This was the second single off of Last Splash, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. Yeah, where she's the flying nun. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a rad... I, I think that's one of my favorite YouTube deep dives. Probably one is um, dunk compilations. Uh, I don't even watch basketball, but I love watching dunk compilations and last-minute buzzer beaters. Oh, my God. If you're ever feeling bad about your day, just watch last-minute buzzer beaters, and it just puts you in such a good headspace. Uh, mm-hmm. And also just like old, um, just old music videos from like... 90s directors uh and just seeing what they did to like just make this song kind of cool spike jones i think was heavily involved in this video along with kim gordon from sonic youth yeah yeah she always had her hand in like a bunch of different video stuff which i i think it's kind of fun because like with music videos um you yeah you sometimes you're trying to tell a story but like you don't you know the only audio is is the song so just from a production standpoint like you know, whenever I'd be involved in editing music videos, like you could shoot anywhere. Like it doesn't matter if there's a ton of like traffic noise because you don't you have to worry about dialogue. So you can just have access to all these spaces. If you're just trying to make a normal short with your friends, like there's so many like helicopters and cars going by. It's so hard to get good, clean sound. And if you're just doing a music video, it's like none of that matters. You could just do anything. And have it's ever, so have you ever made any videos for for musicians? Uh, yeah, I did. I did make a couple of music videos for this um, band in Phoenix, Arizona, called Fatigo, 
and um, they do would do like um, almost kind of like a Mexican version of They Might Be Giants. I think would be a really fun way to describe it. And uh, my buddy and I would put on shows, and we would have bands play, like indie bands, like before, or sometimes we'd have a live band on stage. We were always trying to marry music and comedy as much as we could, just because you know you could get the music kids to come to your come to your comedy show because comedy's cool now but like back in like the early 2000s like man it totally wasn't like if you went on a date and said like oh i do stand-up comedy that was just like that was not a good thing you kept that you kept that shit locked down until like the third day till she liked you because it just was like awkward and plus like i was terrible at it so that wasn't it takes a while to get to get good at it so um so yeah i made a couple videos for a band out in phoenix and uh you know, if they're on YouTube, you type in Fatigo, they'll pop up. It's they're pretty weird. But like we got a lot of cool like desert shots and stuff and you know, press play on the little tape recorder and they play along to it so it would match up in editing. It's really fun. I think there are a lot of similarities between if you're a comedian and also being a musician in just kind of tucking that shit away. Because yeah. I remember, you know, about a year or two afterwards, um, you know, of meeting my now wife, she was mortified. You know, when I told her <laughs> that I play a little music and she was really afraid that she would just completely hate what I was doing. And that would have been the kiss of death of our relationship had she oh, just you know, went yeah. to a show and said, yeah, I, this isn't I can't do this. You know, oh, man, I had comic friends that you'd be like good friends with and then they wouldn't like go to see like see your show or they just be super nervous. Like afterwards, it'd always be like, man, I'm so glad you're funny because like. I don't know if we could hang out if you weren't funny. And it's, I've had that happen multiple times. And I'm like, fuck yeah, man, of course I'm funny. Like, that's my thing. But it's tough if you're friends with another comic and they're just terrible. And there's so many, like, I don't know. I, I hear, here's my view of art in general music, comedy, film, poetry, whatever. Like, most of it is bad. Most of everything we make is just not good. You know, it's why. People always say like, oh, they don't make music like they used to. It's because the music from the 70s and the 80s that we're listening to, we're just listening to the all-stars. We're just listening to the stuff that rose to the top that like, and we're listening to all the garbages today. So it's like, yeah, you can't compare them. You know, you have to wait to see what are the, what are the gems from today? So like, I just feel like most art's bad, but like you still got to do it because you got to get through the bad stuff to get to your good stuff. And even when you get to your good stuff, you're still cranking out garbage half the time. So uh, it's, I try. It's a weird way to keep me inspired. It's like, ah, don't get too precious about it. It's all garbage anyway. <laughs> I wonder if technology's kind of an opened a door for, hey, anybody can do this. When it comes to anything creative, I just like kind of have like, the basketball approach. Is if you play basketball, you're going to get better at basketball, and if you play with people who are better than you, you're going to get better. So it's like, like as long as you don't stop, you'll be fine. You might not get to where you originally envisioned, you know, but you know, you'll still get really good at the thing you're doing. So I don't know. That's, and that's always something I have to like remind myself because I think the problem is like, if you're doing anything creative is if, if you're, if reality doesn't meet your expectations, like you're going to be pretty bummed, you know? So it's about just managing those expectations and kind of realizing why you're doing something to begin with. That's really sage advice. I mean, and I, I should listen to it. 
I just realized, well, I just heard what I was saying and I was like, you should listen to this guy. He knows what he's talking about. You you did suggest that you were 75 after you turned, what, 21? Yeah. Yeah. So So there's, there's some sage advice. I just have, I just have to constantly remind myself to listen to it. That's the thing is like, I learn a life lesson and then I have to learn it like 45 more times. Friends, we're talking with comedian, editor, extraordinaire, Ron Babcock here on Cover to Cover with Matt Targa. All things of breeders, all things, you know, comedy, art, various, uh, you know, synergies, all of this good stuff. Um, let's talk about a couple more tracks from Last Splash. What are what are some of your favorites here? I mean, Cannonball is the one that everybody knows, you know, um, and that was like the mega hit that, uh, you know, she started um, the breeder. Well, she came off um, uh, the Pixies with Frank Black it was doing the breeders as a side project. And then all of a sudden... Uh, like the breeders exploded with this, like with cannonball and it has this really great opening bass riff uh, by Josephine Wiggs. Who I think just like added that on, like that was her thing that she added on. And uh, it's like, and it's this great song that's become emblematic of that early kind of nineties era where you hear it and it just transport you back to that time. And I remember hearing it when I was a kid and it's this weird video with this like bowling ball going Mm -hmm. around a studio, Mm -hmm. which when I was a kid, um, I was afraid to touch the ground if all the lights were off because I thought there was a bowling ball that would chase me. Like I would, I would hop from the, the coffee table to the couch, to the dining room table. And I just wouldn't touch the floor in our family room because this I, w- I don't know. I, I, my dad took me bowling. I liked bowling, but I thought there was this like evil bowling ball facing me. So when I saw that video, I was like, it's so weird, but it's such a fun, funky, rad little song. And um, I just, there's, it's such a great song. Uh, I've seen it used in a couple of like movies and stuff like that. It always fits. It's always such a great song uh, to put into like a show. I've always wondered if the intro to Last Splash, you know, somehow informed Wilco's I'm the Man Who Loves You off of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know. The, the feet, there's just a weird kind of uh, frequency that, that mm-hmm. is similar to, to my ears for whatever reason. And I also wonder if they sampled that early AOL dial up sound in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, because it's kind of buried underneath there. Mm-hmm. And that was like back when like there was like I feel like there was like a good five to ten years where like there were bands just trying to make make songs out of feedback. <laughs> like like Sonic Youth probably did a couple of albums like that. Like they just you know, where they're testing the limits of the audio spectrum and <laughs> I love Sonic Youth. I like a I I enjoy Sonic Youth. I think they're very talented and I love that they are experimenting. But man, I mean, sometimes I'm just like, oh, Jesus, can't we just have a melody on this one? Like, like <laughs> one, one time I played, I was like in high school, I didn't know what I was doing. I played, I accidentally played a Sonic Youth tape backwards and I thought that was the tape. <laughs> like, I just was like, oh, I guess they were doing something really weird on this one. And, and then I realized like, oh no, I played the tape backwards. So I mean, I, I love experimenting, but I think I feel like I don't know. Sometimes the older I get, you know, I'm just like, ah, this guy, give me the hits, man. This was a smash hit for the breeders back in August of 1993, and uh, this was a really important, you know, th- th- I mean, this is a classic lineup here, of course, but this was also a really pivotal time for the band. If I'm, if I remember correctly, here they were uh, on the same 
tour supporting Nirvana on their yeah they're the opening band. This was, a, this was a big this is a big step in their career after you know starting the band a couple of years before that and Tanya Donnelly of Belly Belly was in the group before she decided to to take off and you know form that project. Um, huge stepping stone. It's it's crazy to think like how quickly this kind of went off, you know, for, um, for Kim deal, like compare, I, I mean, and the, uh, the pixies were huge too, but like the breeders definitely exploded, but then they didn't have the, um, the output, the same level of output that they had. I mean, they came out with a couple other albums over the years and, you know, like there would be long spaces in between the albums. Like for me, last splash was always my, I always enjoyed it. Like that's always my favorite, but there's this, there's a little one called fate to fatal, which is like an, an EP that came out with. And the song fate to fatal is like one of my favorite breeder songs uh, ever. It's just such a kind of rip roaring song. And it, um, I don't know. It's one of those songs that kind of makes you want to run, uh, which I, I always like songs that just kind of make you just want to get up and get moving. And I, I don't know. It's like those, I feel like there's it, it, all these bands, they share songwriter I, I don't know how you keep track of this stuff it's so hard you're like oh you were in throwing muses oh wait no then you went to the amps okay then there was wait, pacer and like or like okay, there's like bob mold and husker do and like it following those guys around it's like oh my god you guys are all in like 45 different bands for like three months and guided by voices like he comes out with an, an album every single saturday it feels like it's like I, I cannot keep up with the level of output of robert pollard hold it's, on a uh, sec he just cut an ep yeah <laughs> He like writes, yeah, and it's one of those things that's like, I mean, talk about doing something and just be like, oh, I'm just gonna write through it. Like, not all these are gonna be great, and listen, they aren't. Like, some of them are just like, well, yeah, you know, give it a shot. But uh, it's just like you keep cranking stuff out. Like, yeah, you're gonna have a couple winners. It's almost like gambling. You know, you cover the table enough, so some chips gonna hit once in a while. Folks are talking with Ron Babcock here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, all things the Breeders, and their 1993 album Last Splash. What's next for us here, Ron? Let me see. I want to uh, on the. Do we talk about the Do You Love Me Now? No, but that is track six. That's a co-write between uh, twin sisters Kim and Kelly Deal. Yeah, I think that one's probably like. I mean, God, that one is just. I feel like a Valentine's Day song. It's like a song you dance to at a wedding, like it would like a cool wedding, you know, like a wedding that had like, you know, beers in a, you know, not in like you, I got to walk up to a bartender, but they're just in one giant tub. So you can go over and get the beer when you want to get the beer, which by the way, is my favorite weddings. I hate waiting in line for like a crappy beer. What's the point? I, yeah. I, mean, it's just, I feel like it'd be like that kind of wedding and it'd be like, you know, the bride would probably have like a ton of tattoos. Uh, they'd be cool, you know, and then I'm sure the, the husband would have some like interesting facial hair that we'd all talk about. Uh, but they, they would be playing that song and they would dance to that song and everyone would be like, Oh, this is so sweet. It's so nice. And I, I, I don't know. There's not too many mu- music that I listen to that I would describe as kind. And, uh, I always just kind of feel like, like that, but it's not like that all the way through. Like you have those soft ballads, like my, I went to see a concert. My wife, I God, what was the name? I can't remember the name, but she's like, I want to go see this singer songwriter guy. And he was like beautiful. He's like one of those guys. He's like, I don't know, the American version of BTS, like just like gorgeous. And we walked in and I was like the oldest guy by like 
20 years. Like there was just all teenage girls and like my wife and I, and she looked at me, she's like, Oh, I didn't realize he had such a young audience. And I'm like, I feel so creepy right now. I'm going to stand in the back. <laughs> and, and it was one of those things, like every single song sounded like, like I had trouble like differentiating them. And like, I get it. I mean, listen, one of my favorite bands is the Ramones and, uh, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, they stick to their lane and that lane is awesome. Like mm-hmm. everybody loves that lane, but like, that's the thing I like about the breeders is they just walk around so much and where they, they hit like the hard, they hit the soft, they have like the soft melodies. They have the ones that are just kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Um, the minority, that's the thing that it makes it work is they don't do that that often. They do it once in a while. So it's like a reprieve. I think when bands are a little misguided is when they kind of just stick in that weird space and they just enjoy the weirdness. And I'm like, you got to give us something to hold on to, man. As like the casual music fan, I'm not an expert by any stretch. Like I just need a little bit to hang on to, you know, I don't mind weird. I just don't want weird for five tracks in a row. Yeah. And this song was uh, certainly kind of a more of a tender palate cleanser. The, The track before it, Roy, it's four minutes and 11 seconds of this like distorted cello and yeah, you know, it's like apocalyptic, it, it, really fuzzy bass feedback from a Leslie speaker. It's, it's a cool song. Yeah. Apocalyptic. Um, but then do you love me now? It just hits you like, Oh, it's just like, yeah, it's like kind of, um, huh, it's like an after dinner mint, you know, you're just like, Oh, that was mm. nice. You know, we're like Roy. Yeah. It's like this, uh, I don't know. It's like a spicy, spicy beef stew, you know, and it's just wreaking havoc. It's like Thai beef with red chili. You know, it's just like kind of, you know, it's, I don't know if you've ever eaten it, but it's the kind of meal that lets you know it's in oh, your yeah. mouth, you know? And uh, that's the same thing with this song. It's like, you're listening to me right now. Nothing re- else. It requires your full attention. Yeah. It's kind of like your, your ears are being held hostage and it, it's fun. I mean, is it the song I go to and listen to? Like, I want to hear that right now. No, but like if I'm listening to the album, like I love when that pops up. And that's the thing is a lot of times we don't listen to albums anymore. This is another 75 year old Ron coming out. How kids don't listen to albums anymore because they tell a story, you know, like we're just listening to the 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 hits, the essentials, the singles. Like when and I the- did my album, my, my comedy album, I like spent so much damn time like, OK, I'm going to put this joke first and then this joke. Nobody listens to it like that. They're all listening to it for free on Spotify. So it's chaos anyway. See, I have a different point of view. I treat everything like a piece of art and there's some kind of rationale as to why things are position the way they are it's not just because it's a se- like numerical sequence it's there was a tremendous amount of thought you want to share I, this this and this and maybe they're interconnected but maybe they just kind of make sense sonically i i agree like that's why but that's the thing is like if you're not paying for apple music or spotify and you're just listening to the free version because you don't want to pony up the 10 bucks a month for something which i get like you're, you can't do that you're just listening to somebody's album People are listening to my album. They're listening to Boner Hug before BBC. I mean, that's just crazy. I put the tracks in order for a reason. That's a faux pas. I think. Yeah. I, I still appreciate, you know, I, I appreciate sequence is all I want to say. I, I, and, I do and, too. And com- in, in con comedy discs, that's incredibly important, right? Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're layering you know, I, you're, yeah, you're, I mean, you're building. If you have callbacks, like everybody has callbacks in their sets, you know, it always help. It's helpful. I mean, really, you're just, you know, you're just taking your your act that you would do in like an hour set and putting it to CD. You know, maybe trimming out a couple of jokes that didn't do too well. Save that for the next CD, and then, uh, or you record a bunch of bunch of different shows. You know, I know a lot of guys will like 
you know, they'll do a, a club at Acme up in Minneapolis, which is like one of the best comedy clubs in the country. And they'll like record every single show and then they'll pull from each one. Like they'll use like the Saturday first show as their main one. And then they'll, t- the you know, Saturday late show will be like the drunk show. So it'll be like your dirtier jokes will go over huge. And then they'll cherry pick some of the jokes from there to put them on, on the CD. And then other comics are purists. They're like, Nope, I'm doing one CD. I'm not doing any editing. I'm an editor. So I edited the hell out of my CD. I was like nipping and tucking left and right because that's what I do for a living. So I can't not do that. Um, but I have a lot of respect for the guys who are just like, Nope, just press record. Stop. CD's done. I was like, Oh man, that's awesome. Folks, we're talking with comedian Ron Babcock here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka. Talking about comedy, we're talking about the Breeders and their 1993 smash record, Last Splash on 4AD. Um, where do we go next here? Well, I, I think the, I, the first time I got the Breeders was on a tape. And for me, that was such a, a big thing listening to things on tape because at the time, that meant I could listen to them like in the car which was so cool that you could listen to your own music like mm-hmm. in the car. Like we take a lot of things for granted today. Like, yeah, of course you could listen to your own music in the car and be like, no, that wasn't like a thing you could do. So like the fact that I could tape and like, you, you know, you got to discover what good driving music was, which was always really cool as a kid. And then, you know, you find out we got into CDs and then, you know, cars had to catch up. They had to get CDs. So, but I remember like, and then I had a comedian friend, uh, Brandy Posey. She actually came out with her album on a tape. And I was like, you came out on a tape? And she's like, yeah, like this is the thing I grew up with was tapes. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, that's that was my life too, like just an audio cassette tape. And then a lot of kids today were driving their parents' old ass cars, which had tape decks. So actually, I guess like I didn't realize this, but tapes and vinyl have had the best year that they've ever had in like 20 years or something crazy like that. Apparently they're doing just fine because people are still releasing um, music and, 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 and comedy and all different stuff on these old formats, which is crazy to me. But I, I, I love that because it, I don't know, you just got obsessed with the liner notes and the art and just holding this physical artifact of this band made you yeah. feel a lot closer to it. hundred percent. That's pretty much what this whole program is about on so many levels, dipping into the liner notes, seeing what producers, what musicians may be connected to whom. Yeah. Like playing that connection game. Like my, so my brother, uh, John, he went to the university of Scranton as well. And when he was there, he was the director of the radio, um, the radio station, WUSR, uh, 99.5 for those in Northeast Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I remember he, um, kind of ruined my musical taste by one day coming home and giving me probably like 300 tapes. And you might be thinking like, wow, that's amazing. No, because he kept all the good tapes at the college radio station. So these were all like the derelict tapes that nobody wanted or they couldn't play on the radio. And he gave them to me. So it was like most people develop a music collection piece by piece and they they get one thing and they try and find out what they like. And then they, they build it up over the years. And instead, I have this like 300 tape work project that I had to go through and listen. And I'll tell you what I liked, none of it, because he would give me things like a tape. One was called Tokyo Anal Dynamite. And it was like a Japanese death metal band that was, I mean, it makes Roy sound like a a nursery uh, lullaby. Like it was just so unbelievably hard and ear bleedingly loud music. 
and I'm a completionist. So I'd be like, well, I got to listen to the whole thing, you know, cause I'm again, a 75 year old man. I'm like, yeah, someone made it. I'm going to listen to it. And I would just, and I'm really listening to it and be like, yep, still don't like it. Time for the side B. And so I just would go through these tapes and I wouldn't like ever develop my own musical taste. I kind of learned, um, I guess, addition by subtraction being like, well, I don't like that. And then that, but the breeders was like the first tape that my brother bought me where I was like, oh, this is, this is what I like. This music is what I like. The first tape I bought myself, uh, was slam by Onyx. Sure. Uh, which like the the, the, let the boys the, be boys, because yeah. I didn't have enough money for an actual like tape of whole music, so I just bought the single for like three dollars because that's what I had. I was always jealous of kids who had like allowances from their parents growing up because people would be like, "Well, what kind of music do you have?" And I'm like, "Well, I don't." I'm like, "How do you buy your music?" And they're like, "I just get money from my parents." I'm like, "How do you get money from your parents? Yeah. Like, they just give you money? Like, my parents never gave me." Sh- Maybe yeah. five bucks every once in a while. Yeah, but taking out the garbage or something. Yeah, yeah, I would always like go and spend it on like pizza and soda. Like I didn't have the wherewithal to be like, I got to save up for this album because my thinking was like, well, how do I know it's going to be good? Because I've, I got 300 tapes at home that just suck balls. So I was had a real like nervous approach when it came to like purchasing music. I think that's the argument that can be made about streaming versus, you know, having something physically that's part of your own collection. You cherry oh. you cherry pick what you know people oh, think yeah. are great, you know, versus the entire body of work. Which, I mean, if uh, I get a hankering to listen to like French synth pop, you know, I could have that on my computer in like ten seconds. Where, I mean, it's just such a great way of. I mean, it, it, but it's also not great for artists. Like I know a lot of comedians. Like we don't make a ton of money off streaming. Like I mean, and the comedians who are making money off streaming, like they're they're getting by but they're cranking albums out and they're they're meeting their expenses but they're not like necessarily killing it like it's it's hard for a lot of uh, artists to like make a living off this it's almost more like it becomes this like um this kind of side hustle thing that we do that may or may not be profitable you know do you, re- do you receive some sort of a check i'm just curious about this because musicians if you aggregate your things through a platform like say tunecore or cd baby you'll get a check in the mail or you get something delivered straight to your personal checking account or whatever the case is. How does that work with comedy? Do you, you know, if you decide to aggregate with different platforms, do you receive compensation in the same type of way that yeah. musicians do or usually the same way? I know uh, Canadian comics do pretty well because um the Canadian government like has to play so many Canadian artists on their channels so they like will get like I had friends who like came out with an album just to be like, I need to come out with the album because they were Canadian and they could make a lot of money from the album, even though they're like, yeah, this is not my best work. I just need, I need something out there to make my rent. And I think uh, for me, I, my deal is differently because I was with a very small indie label in Austin, Texas called Sure Thing Records, Brendan K. O'Grady, Duncan Carson, just lovely, lovely people. And they came to me and they were like, Hey, do you want to do an album? And so they took care of all the cost and mastering and all that stuff. So it went through all them and, and we, a very generous split. So they just send me every, every year I just get a little check and it's, I gotta tell you, it feels good when you get a check and you're like, huh, cool. Like my, all right. Like this is, that was fun. Cause as you don't, I don't think people get into comedy to make money, put it like that. 
Some people do. It has been done. But when I did that tour that I told you a little bit ago, that yeah. three-month tour, I'm I'm like super fastidious about everything. I'm an editor, so I'm very detail-oriented. I you know totaled how much I spent, how much I made. I had my little spreadsheet. And I came home. I did all my little numbers. And I realized I made $1 the entire tour after expenses. I made one buck after three months of hauling ass and like... I don't know how, like 90 shows in like 40 cities. I was selling merch like crazy. Matt, I made $1. I don't I know. I mean, that's just not sustainable. You can't fund an IRA with $1. It's defeating. Yeah, but a, it was. But a whole hell of a lot of fun. And all my all my friends were like, dude, you didn't lose money? Like they were all imp- so impressed that I made money because they're like, nobody makes money when you go on tour. And I'm just like, but I remember being like, that was a little bit of a, a kick in the teeth because I was like, I mean, my buddy Mishka Shubali, who's a great uh, singer songwriter, he basically he just calls himself a long distance t shirt salesman. And <laughs> when he like when he hawks his t shirts, he's like, "You guys, can you just can you please buy a t shirt?" Like there is such a sincerity in his his sale. It's like, no, no, I, I got a lot of you like the songs, but I really need you guys to buy a t shirt right now. Because those T-shirts are more uh, lucrative in some you always, cases. You're always selling for twenty too, because you don't got to make change for a twenty. That is the game. But now it's not so bad now because yeah. everybody can just like do Venmo, so it's a lot easier. Uh, but you know, a couple of years ago, that was just just becoming a thing. Friends are talking with Ron Babcock here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tark about the breeders and comedy and just the life of an artist, I suppose. Yeah, um, sure. Why not? That's yeah. Just- what uh, what shall we do now? Oh, um, hmm. I'm trying to think. I got my al- the album right here. I love, um, I love like the the song "Hag." Um, near the end, it's this um kind of bass driven kind of track, and it um she has this weird part at where she's like, "Okay," like it's just this kind of almost Valley Girl kind of intonation in her voice, and uh. I mean, I didn't do drugs back in high school, but I felt like this is what drugs probably felt like, you know, like this song. And um, I don't know. It's just such a weird. It's one of those songs. It's such a weird song that I love listening to. Is there something lyrically that speaks to you on this? On she's this like, track or, yeah. she says this one line where she's like, just like a woman. Okay. And they're like, and we're on again. And half the time, I don't even know necessarily like what the lyrics are. Like, I can't fully understand them. Like, can you fully understand lyrics when you're listening to a song? I old man ears over here has to go to the liner notes and or has to look them up online to see what they're saying. No, I still need the liner notes. Occasionally, something will just you know really grip me and say, "Wow, that's a really cool turn of phrase." But yeah, I, I rely on liner notes all the time. Well, I don't even like. For I still buy my, records, you know? I mean, for half my life, I, I didn't even look at anything. Like, I just, I feel like I just get so sucked into the melody and I catch words, but like, I don't, I've never looked at the the, the lyrics like a lot. I feel like I'm almost like cheating music because I don't listen to the lyrics. I feel like it's the way they should be or the way they're intended to be. I just get sucked into the melody and I get lost into this feeling whatever feeling, whatever emotion the song wants me to feel, I get lost in that. And I don't really like even concern myself with the words, which I kind of feel bad about. Like I always feel like I'm listening to music wrong. Cause I'm like, no, I should be, 
especially in LA, I have so many friends who are into music and it's like trying to have a conversation with, I just shut up because I'm just like, oh, I can't hang with these guys. <laughs> they know too much. And I don't know. It's like, so I don't even necessarily know all the, the lyrics, but I just kind of go with the, the feeling the song gives me. And I, I, yeah. I don't know. It's like a lazy Susan of feelings on this one. You just get all, all of them get covered. <laughs> I, I tend to focus on lyrics first for whatever reason. I don't know. Well, if you're a singer songwriter, right? Like that's like, you know, and that seems to be the way I happen to write. Like lyrics happen to fall first before melody. Oh, Everybody, that's interesting. Oh, almost always. And then I react to what I've, you know, put on paper and say, uh, it kind of has like this. Let's, let's take a little bit of this on my palette and see what happens and then mix it up. See, it, but when you do your songs, do they, like, do they change at all as you perform them or you, do you make a song and it's like, well, no, this is the song you like it or you don't. I think sometimes, you know, a song might start off as kind of an introspective folkier t- you know, type of thing, especially if I'm playing solo acoustic, but then every once in a while I have a song called midnight sun. It's a folkier introspective kind of song that might, you know, kind of lean sort of like, I don't know, John Wesley Harding, like Bob Dylan record from 1967. But every once in a while, I just kind of like give it some sort of a reggae tempo to it just hmm. to like screw with myself and and continue to make that song interesting in its own mm-hmm. way. I liked I liked, you know, the way things were fully formed, but live, I'll just goof around with it and, and see if people respond, you know? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I know with jokes, it's like they're never done. Like I have jokes that I put on albums that I do now that are different. Think- do you change your cadence every once in a while? Well, oh what yeah, no, the cadence just comes out always differently. But just like you'll just cut beats or you'll come up. Oh my god! Every time you record an album, like the week later, you'll come up with it like such a better tag for a joke, and you're like, "Damn it! I can't!" Ah! Like you get so, like you just make a joke end stronger. But like you're always coming up with like other, um, like my buddy, I was doing this joke, like about how like it's like the higher your possessions are off the ground, the better off you're doing at life. You know, like like TV on the ground, uh, like TV on a little stand. Okay, TV on the wall. Like, hey, this place is pretty nice. So it's just all about like kind of how high your things are. And then yeah. I was talking to my buddy, and he was like, "Oh, dude, it's like the same with couches." And he came up with this great idea. He's like, "The further your couch is from the wall, the better off you're doing." Like, and I was like, "Oh my god, yeah!" Like, think of every nice house you've ever been in. Like, the couch is always in the middle of the room, like a pleasure boat. So it's yeah. like. You think like, well, where's my couch? And you're like, oh, it's in the corner. But like, it was one of those things where like, I had the joke. A joke always goes well. I love I love doing jokes about like apartments and just just weird stuff. I'm like a little interior design nerd, so like, I love that kind of stuff. And my buddy was just like talking to him about it. He's like, and you just find a tag, you know, and then you like that's in the same vein. And so you could do that joke for like, I mean, I've done jokes for like five, six, seven years, and then all of a sudden we'll find a completely new kind of tag that takes it to like a whole new level. And then you talk about that. And so I always like that, like a joke to me is this like living thing that can change over time or you just like lose a joke, like a beat that doesn't really work. A lot of times you won't lose it because you want it to work. So you just keep doing it and keep doing it and be like, Oh, I'm going to find the audience that loves it. And they happened once the first time you did the joke and then it never works again, but you just keep, keep trying to do that tag. That's when you know, the comedians will always go like, oh, I guess that one's for me. That's yes, it was. 
When's your next, uh, are you working on any new material that might result in a comedy album, I'm, comedy record? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. All comedians are always working on their next album. I'm uh, about, I don't know, maybe a third of the way to my second album. Um, it's the, I gotta tell you, pandemic was not great for standup. Um, it was great for animation because that's the one thing that you could still do from home. So while I didn't do any performing on the standup, I was editing animation uh, pretty much nonstop. So I'm currently on a job now for uh, a show for HBO Max called Clone High, which was a show that was on MTV like in the early 2000s. It's from um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. You know them from Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and Lego movies and 21 Jump Street and uh, a new show on Apple that just came out, I think, like After Party. Um, So, yeah, they're very, very good at what they do. So I'm editing on that show now and... Um, yeah, I'm trying to work on a, on a little project where my buddy Chris and I have been animating voicemails that my mom has left us. And so we're going to be putting those up, uh, out really soon. Actually, we got like five of them done and, uh, they're super, super duper fun. Uh, big hit with my family. Uh, but everyone else I show them to too, really likes them because my mom's a sweetheart. Is it untitled and, at this point? Uh, it's just voicemails from mom. Voicemails from uh, mom. but, uh, it, yeah, it'll be, um, I think it's one of those things where my wife's pregnant. So we're going to be having a baby soon. So I don't know when it's, it's difficult to make time for uh stand up with, as you, I'm sure you can with your own stuff, having okay. a kid and a wife and a job and all the things it's, it's a little bit easier in your twenties when you have like literally no responsibilities, except just going to the open mic that night and hanging out with your dipshit friends. I hear that. Ron, I would like to uh, close our conversation by going back to the breeders here for a minute or so. Sure. And let's let's talk about cover art. So we we live in this fast-paced, wild west, if you will, sort of environment where anything goes. Anything goes in comedy, anything goes in music. There is something though that is ubiquitous, and that is some kind of presence of cover art. When you look at this particular cover for the breeders last uh, last splash, excuse me, what comes to mind what kinds of images are conjured up do you think it's an accurate representation of what you're about to experience yeah it you know what it is it's perfect it's a it's like a it, it looks it looks like a heart-shaped strawberry but really it, it looks like a, a like a heart-shaped mylar balloon that has kind of dark liquid spattered all over it which kind of at first glance if you looked at it really quickly you think like oh that's a weird looking strawberry with kind of a, a psychedelic background, like a green foliage and like kind of red and leaves, but the colors are saturated and they kind of fuzzed everything up. So it almost looks like a weird, creepy tie dye. And I love it because to me, it has the sweetness of the heart on the album, the songs, but then it's kind of smattered with this like dark, oily liquid in this kind of fucked up drug fueled kind of. Uh, uh, I don't know if it was, but it like, you know, it, background. And I think it perfectly captures the, the songs that you're about to hear. And I love, I love cover art. I think as another thing in comedy, like I would always meet comics who would like phone in their cover art for their album. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, are you high? Of course it matters. Or like Jesus H like the world is a visual medium, whether you like it or not. Like you got to give a shit. Like I, I spent so much time thinking about my cover and I was happy with the result. It's the name of the album is called This Guy. And I have like two, my two thumbs are pointing at me. And then I have all these other hands popping out from me, also pointing at me. And one was my my girlfriend, now wife's hand. 
The other was my buddy George's, who's like, you know, he's kind of Armenian. And then uh, Jessica, like she she was black. And then this other dude, like with a muscly hand. So like, I basically just try to get all these different colored arms pointing at me. So you would could clearly see like, oh, this is not this white man's arms. Ha 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 ha. So, uh, but I was, uh, yeah, I, I spent so much time like thinking of like, what would be a cool, fun cover? Because I know when people are scrolling iTunes, you got to see what jumps out to you. And the Breeders one, that always jumped out to me because it's recognizable, but also just kind of weird. Ron Babcock, comedian extraordinaire, editor extraordinaire. Thank you very much for spending some time on the show today talking about the Breeders Last Splash and just talking about your overall craft. This has been a lot of fun for me, getting to know you a little bit more. And uh, just thanks, man. I really appreciate this. Oh, dude, it was lovely to catch up with you. I apologize for talking so goddamn fast. I tend to do that. And I realized I was like, oh, man, pump the brakes, Babcock. But uh, I, I had a, a lot of fun uh, talking music. Yeah, I always get nervous talking about music because I feel like it's not the thing that's like in my wheelhouse, you know, so you are a, a delightful host and you made me feel very at home and at ease. So that just, that's a credit to you and your show. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm looking forward to all of your projects that you have on the horizon. So Ron Babcock, thank you so much. Oh man, uh, thanks for having me. And uh, dude, um, I'm just going to give you a call like later on this week. So we could also just catch up on things, not about the breeders. Cause I, it was, it's great to hear from you, man. I'm, I'm, I want to hear more about what's going on in Tarka land. Sounds good. Awesome, dude. All right. Thanks so much to all of you for taking some time to stop by the program today. For all of you listeners out there, thank you very much. And please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcasts, whether that's on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or maybe even Amazon. Take a moment to tell a friend or tell some of your family members about our show. Let us know how much you like the show by giving us a good rating. That will certainly help us appear higher in search results. And feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore a world from cover to cover. <laughs> <laughs>